This week, Sears receives court approval of MTN sale to Cyrus. Full Beauty contemplates early February, Chapter 11. Judge Jones says dispute over Westmoreland's McKinsey retention could lead to a career ending. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Happy New Year and welcome to The Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the REORG Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from REORG's offices in New York City. This week, Mark Fisher, our Director of Credit Research, sits down with senior reporter Jim Holloway. Jim, of course, is in your ears weekly as the host of the Week Ahead segment. Mark and Jim discuss recent developments in the onshore energy sector with a focus on the Permian Basin. It's Sunday, January 6th. 2019 started just how 2018 ended in the land of distressed, with Sears again making headlines. ESL Investments disclosed a going concern bid for substantially all of Sears' assets, along with an alternative bid in the event that the going concern bid is not deemed accepted. A newly formed entity controlled by ESL, Transform Holdco, submitted the offers on December 28th, with an approximately $4.4 billion purchase price on the going concern bid for substantially all of the go-forward retail footprint and other assets and component businesses of Sears Holdings. ESL also offered to purchase certain specified assets of the debtors through a smaller alternative proposal if the going concern proposal is not qualified or accepted. The fund additionally disclosed an indicative interest in pursuing a real estate transaction if the going concern bid is not qualified or accepted. ESL said it is, quote, prepared to move as quickly as possible to negotiate, finalize, and enter into definitive agreements for the indicative bid to acquire certain real estate assets of the debtors, including ground leases, for up to $1.814 billion in total consideration. If the going concern proposal or the alternative proposal have not been determined to be a qualifying bid under the global bidding procedures order by January 4th, they would automatically terminate. Also this week, Judge Robert Drain approved the Sears debtor's sale of approximately $650 million in SRAC-issued medium-term notes, or MTNs, to Cyrus Capital Partners at a follow-up hearing that Judge Drain mandated on December 20th. During the ruling, the court approved the remaining portion of the sale transaction. The lockup of non-debtor affiliate Sears Rees MTNs that the court observed was a, quote, integral aspect of the overall sale transaction. The lockup and various aspects of the sale were the subject of a challenge launched by Omega Advisors and Oxiv Capital. But Judge Drain overruled all objections at the earlier December 20th hearing, aside from the challenge to the lockup provision. Judge Drain also made clear that his good faith finding with respect to the sale transaction is limited to the record before him, in light of concerns voiced by the UCC with respect to certain de-risking transactions Cyrus engaged in after the December 20th hearing. An ISDA Determinations Committee on the SRAC CDS auction was held on Thursday and Friday to discuss various general interest questions proposing a modification to the auction terms. The committee announced Friday afternoon that it would not be amending the auction terms in line with the general interest questions requests. Westmoreland also continues to make headlines over the dispute on the debtor's decision to hire McKinsey Recovery and Transformation Services, or RTS. 
Judge David Jones stated at a hearing in Houston on Thursday that careers could end and the party should really contemplate the stakes in the ongoing dispute between McKinsey and Marbo Value Partners principal and Alex Partners founder Jay Alex. The judge continued the conference to January 14th, stating that the parties have, quote, seen the gun in the monkey's hand, and that before the January 14th conference, the parties would, quote, try to figure out if they're going to take the gun out of the monkey's hand. In late November, Marbo objected to Westmoreland's application to retain RTS, alleging that McKinsey, including its McKinsey Investment Office, or MIO unit, had made false representations and concealed its relationships to parties in interest in the Westmoreland cases, and also had disqualifying connections to the members of the ad hoc group who would likely acquire the debtor's assets under the Chapter 11 plan. On the other hand, RTS has argued that Marbo's objections and claims of fraud are based on, quote, an extreme and idiosyncratic view of the law. RTS also asserts that Marbo ignored the look-back period specified in Bankruptcy Rule 2014 and mistakenly listed connections that were actually disclosed by RTS. Judge Jones in early December stated that if the allegations are true, they could violate the U.S. Code of Criminal Procedure and, quote, otherwise impugn the integrity of the bankruptcy process. At a hearing on December 18th, Judge Jones said that while he does not know enough yet to determine, quote, who's right and who's wrong, he highlighted the substantial allegations made by Marbo and warned of a, quote, horrible consequence to someone. At Thursday's hearing, Judge Jones asked the parties to, quote, really contemplate the stakes in the dispute. He explained that if Alex's allegations are true, McKinsey has what he called a Title 18 problem and that if Alex has committed perjury and slandered a company, he also faces a Title 18 problem, a reference to the U.S. Code's Crimes and Criminal Procedure section. He warned again that, quote, somebody doesn't survive this the way it's currently postured. After a recess, the party said they would like additional time to consider and discuss the court's concerns and other matters relating to the dispute. Judge Jones continued the scheduling conference January 14th, and in doing so, the judge emphasized that he is not advocating a resolution and does not care if the matter settles. Once this starts, Judge Jones reiterated, quote, you will not be able to stop me. Full Beauty announced on Thursday that it has entered into a comprehensive restructuring support agreement with key stakeholders and plans to file for Chapter 11 in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York. According to the press release announcing the RSA, the plan solicitation process would end, quote, on or about January 24th, with the company filing a voluntary petition after the period ends. The online plus-size apparel retailer says that the restructuring transaction set out in the RSA would reduce outstanding indebtedness by approximately $900 million. The company also said that parties who have signed on to the RSA include equity sponsors Apex Partners and Charles Bank Capital Partners, holders of 100% of first-in, last-out term loan claims, holders of over 99% of its first lien term loan claims, and holders of over 95% of its second lien term loan claims. Full Beauty said that it, quote, expects to emerge from bankruptcy shortly after filing, and the restructuring transaction is expected to close in early 2019. The press release also previews $30 million of additional liquidity from a new money term loan to be provided by Full Beauty's existing lenders.
A source close to the matter told Reorg that Full Beauty expects to file for Chapter 11 on or around February 4th, with a prepackaged plan reflecting the RSA. The source also said that the reorganized company's capital structure would include an ABL revolver, $30 million in new money term debt, and senior and junior take-back paper. The pre-petition lenders and sponsors would receive equity, according to the source. On the island of Puerto Rico, several parties filed objections to the COFINA plan of adjustment by Wednesday's 4 p.m. Eastern time deadline, including multiple individual retail subordinated bondholders, GMS Group, which holds more than $500 million of subordinated COFINA bonds in approximately 5,000 retail accounts, Boston-based financial advisory firm Elliott Asset Management, and several unions. The objections filed by the individual bondholders, as well as GMS and Elliott, contend that the COFINA plan violates the Bankruptcy Code and Title III of PROMESA, and assert that the plan violates several provisions of the U.S. Constitution, including the Takings Clause. One individual bondholder, Peter C. Hine, says the plan discriminates against individual COFINA bondholders in the 50 states when compared with the treatment of Puerto Rico individual and Puerto Rico institutional investors. Procell Utier, which advocates for the rights of public sector employees in Puerto Rico, says the COFINA plan was not proposed in good faith and is not feasible, nor in the best interest of creditors because the debtor cannot make payments under the plan and provide, quote, future public services at the level necessary to its viability as a municipality. Commonwealth tax collections declined year-over-year in November, but beat projections for the month in the Commonwealth's certified fiscal plan, and remain ahead of targets for fiscal 2019, the Treasury Department reported on Monday. Net revenue to the general fund was $557 million in November, $16.8 million less than a year ago, but ahead of estimates for the month by $25.5 million compared with the current October fiscal plan. The Treasury Department said the year-over-year decline was due to the payment in November 2017 of tax bills that had been postponed in the wake of Hurricane Maria. Net revenue to the general fund totaled $3.54 billion through the first five months of fiscal 2019, a 20.9% increase over the July to November period a year ago. The $3.54 billion figure was $557.9 million more than projected for the five-month period in the June fiscal plan and $25.5 million more than the revised estimate. Other top red stories of the week were, one, Windstream sells Earthlink consumer internet business to Trive Capital for $330 million in cash. Two, California AG outlines potential criminal offenses if reckless conduct by PG&E caused fires. And three, Talon Energy Supply announces cash tender for $200 million of unsecured notes. Now here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thanks, Karen, and Happy New Year one and all. It's the first full week of business, and it looks like we're off to a somewhat slowish start. So let's enjoy it while we can. Monday, January 7th, in Puerto Rico's cases, oral arguments before the First Circuit Court of Appeals on the security interest dispute between the employee retirement system and certain bondholders. Tuesday, January 8th, conferences in the Sears and Avaya matters. And Wednesday, January 9th, it's the bidding deadline for First Energy's West Lorraine power plant. 
So make sure you get yours in if you'd like a fossil generation facility in Lorain, Ohio. Great views of Lake Erie, I understand, and there is a stalking horse bid already in the amount of $152 million. Thursday, January 10th, quite a bit going on. The confirmation hearing in iHeart, the final dip hearing for Waypoint, the dip amendment hearing in Nine West, and in Synergy Pharma, final dip objections are due. Friday, January 11th, we have the second day hearing in checkout holdings, and in Sears, objections are due related to the automatic stay relief motion for KCD intercompany creditor notes. So there you go. Karen, over to you, and I'll be back shortly. Thanks, Jim. We'll be following all that and more in the coming week. Now we turn it over to Mark Fisher, who's back again with Jim, to discuss the latest from Onshore Energy with a focus on the Permian. Thank you, Karen. So I am here again with Jim Holloway, who once again has put on his energy hat and to talk about uh, the onshore energy market with a particular focus on the Permian. So Jim puts out his quarterly review of uh, what producers have to say uh, with a little bit of, um, uh, of perhaps forward predictions and trends that have been going on in, in the market. And this quarter, of course, is particularly interesting given the volatility in oil prices. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've seen a, a pretty sharp sell-off in, in oil markets um, you know, over the last few months. Some people blame demand, some people bl blame supply. On the supply side, uh, of course, there's some international uh, concerns with what OPEC's gonna do, but then, of course, there's um, the uh, the U.S. producers as well. Uh, we've seen a lot of growth out of the Permian over the last, um, over the last few years, but Jim has uncovered some perhaps discrepancies uh, or some mixed statements by operators in, in this last quarter. Uh, so with that, wanted to focus in on, on some of those. Um, so Jim, you know, for a while now we've seen this tremendous growth coming out of the Permian producers, but recently, you know, some of those companies have actually adjusted their capital budgets lower. Uh, is this true? Um, yeah, that's correct, Mark. Uh, what happened is that toward the end of December, Diamondback and Pioneer, which are two of the more significant independent E&Ps in the Permian Shale, announced that in light of the volatility in crude prices that you just mentioned, they were electing to scale back activity in the basin in this year, 2019. Diamondback stated that it meant to prioritize its dividend and shareholder returns, and Pioneer, which in the third quarter said it planned to reach free cash flow break even by the middle of this year, said that it now expects to outspend cash flow by $250 million, which is uh, still, they highlighted, a 50% drop from last year. And so I think what we're seeing is a real or rather an increasing emphasis on capital discipline and shareholder returns. Um, it's been a prominent theme, of course, since the 2014-2016 downturn. And with crude faltering, along with stock and bond prices, it's really to dominate. It's really come to dominate a lot of the discussion from the larger public companies. Um, Companies are still in the budgeting process right now. I expect we'll see more announcements of activity curtailment as these are completed and reserve reports are updated. Of course, should oil pop back up, it doesn't take an immense amount of time or money to crank up activity, but it makes long-term planning just that much more difficult. Great. So why do you think there's this focus on uh, discipline? 
Well, I think what the industry is getting from the market and more importantly from the providers of capital is that what is wanted is discipline. Discipline defined as spending within cash flow or having a plan for getting there and developing a plan for rewarding long-suffering investors in the uh, oil and in, in the energy sector. There's not a lot of interest in funding chasing the, uh, the you know, the last marginal barrel in a, in a marginal play. Uh, the, the Dallas Fed yesterday released its fourth quarter energy survey, which I highly recommend anyone, everyone read. And it had this extremely interesting comment from a correspondent. Um, and I quote, capital providers are likely to place more focus on discounted cash flow analysis as compared to emphasis on balance sheet increases in the form of undeveloped reserves. Unquote. So really, cash flow is king rather than just a 2P number, which used to be what, uh, what the companies um, chased back before the downturn. And interestingly enough, the same respondent said that in his view, it would require WTI at $70 to justify continued development of unconventional reserves. Uh, I'm not really sure if he meant the break-even or if that was based on a target IRR. At any rate, uh, the whole issue of permanent break-evens is always a great source of discussion. Um, I think it is worth noting that uh, this survey also showed about 35% of respondents budgeted for, you know, their budgets for 2019 were at 50 to 55 WTI, and about 50% of respondents budgeted in the 55 to 65 dollar range. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I guess you, you look at some of this discipline um, and, you know, what, what the market wants here and perhaps investors, you know, still just remember the prior cycle, which, uh, you know, was really just a few years ago, uh, you know, when, when oil went through its, its last, um, uh, last bit of pressure. Um, you know, throughout your story, you paint the picture of an environment where uh, the industry and producers recognize the need to boost inflow of capital uh, back to the industry, um, which you actually say or allude to, you could come from could come in the form of equity capital. Uh, so. Uh, from the producer standpoint, you know, what are they doing to try and draw in that capital? Well, I really think one of the main things they're trying to do is to show the market that as investments, they're suitable for widows and orphans, buy and hold style, I guess, you know, pension fund and endowment type investors. You know, the oil patch definitely has had no shortage of colorful characters whose personal fortunes follow something of a boom and bust trajectory. And, uh, and very often, I think oil names, unless you're Chevron or Exxon, um, are viewed as is similarly risky and subject to uh, to boom and bust. Um, so in the current environment, companies with the cash flow and the balance sheet and you know the, the reserve based and the production to do so, and this includes Diamondback or a company like Concho Resources, which initiated a dividend in the third quarter, would like to move beyond that and um, broaden their base into more institutional sponsorship, I guess. You know, Diamondback just talked about wanting to make itself the must-own, um, the uh, single-focus Permian company out there. And uh, I also think it's worth noting that companies with better institutional sponsorship, um, and this would be like Whiting Petroleum and SM Energy, um, held up a lot better during the last couple of months than company without it. And so I think what the other things they really want to do is make the business understandable and predictable insofar as that's possible for something that's subject to commodity cycles. Uh, Will Gerard, uh, who yesterday was named as a COO of Concho, said at a conference late last year that the task is to make an E&P look like a widget company, a high-quality industrial that trades at a higher multiple than an E&P.
Uh, what I will say, though, also is that I think the focus on shareholder returns and predictability is something that's more of a focus for larger cap names who regularly need to tap the debt or equity capital markets. Uh, the Dallas Fed survey that I mentioned, um, they, they surveyed 163 oil and gas companies across Texas, southern New Mexico, and northern Louisiana, which would include the Eagleford, the Haynesville, the Barnett Shale, and the Permian. That's going to capture a lot of the smaller entrepreneurial public and private companies and, uh, and, and ones like that. Um, and about 35% of those said that they plan to increase CapEx slightly. 15% said increase significantly. And about 46% said that their number one goal this year was to grow production. Shareholder returns was sixth. So you still have a lot of companies in that early stage that are still chasing that reserve base to grow, uh, which could have come from more borrowing capacity. Um, I'll also note that uh, Evercore ISI spending survey out in December forecast a 10% in it, overall imp- increase in CapEx this year, down from 20% growth in 18 and a 47% increase in 16. Um, they also think it's likely we'll muddle through the first half of the year before a pickup in the second half. And uh, should this capital cut in, what are producers uh, using it for? Well, I think one thing that they would uh, definitely like to use it for and probably need to use it for is consolidation. The Permian's a big basin. There's a lot of operators. Um, the oil companies there become amazingly efficient and producing far more than anyone thought possible a year or a couple of years ago. Um, but the greatest efficiencies in terms of scale and cost is really going to come from conjoining continuous acreage, I guess you could say, on a very large scale. Um, this past year, we saw the big marquee deals from Diamondback and Energen, Concho acquiring RSP, and Cimerex acquiring Resolute. And in all those cases, the acquirers cited the industrial logic of uh, bigger and scale and efficiencies from that. Of course, equity is not a bad currency for acquisitions, but I think some, everyone would still like, would still like to see less volatility in the stock market and a high-yield market that's open to E&Ps before, and a recovery in asset prices before any major deals happen. Uh, Michael Bird, the Aiken Gump partner here in Houston, who's worked on Diamondback and countless other deals, said that while we might not get a uh, blockbuster 10, million deal, 10 billion deal this year, we're still likely to see others in the nine-figure range, not just in the Permian, but also in Appalachia, Louisiana, the Powder River Basin, and also the Eagleford. Yeah, thanks Thanks for that, Jim. Uh, you know, one other thing, going back to that Dallas Fed survey uh, that, that you talked about here, uh, switching over to the oil service, uh, oil field services firms, you know, they were asked if their operating margins increased, uh, decreased, or remained unchanged from the third quarter of 2018. And um, what they said is, you know, it's interesting. They said 39% of respondents said that their operating margin decreased sequentially. And um, another 41% um, said it was unchanged. So only 20% actually said that their margins increased. And one comment here I thought was pretty interesting uh, that one, one of the firms made, uh, and I quote, service rates for our production services continue to be static and lower than in previous years. Most oil and gas companies continue to exert their will for cheaper services. So, I, you know, I wonder what this consolidation, um, you know, if, if it happens or actually might continue from, you know, some of the deals that you, um, that, that you talked about earlier in the year, if that consolidation continues. 
Well, yeah, the margin decrease was uh, was definitely an interesting thing. I mean, I thought that it may have had something to do with the fact that during the quarter there was a you know rather well announced, well advertised budget exhaustion. There was you know kind of a definite slowdown. Um, there may have been just some more some more um, you know some more competition in the spot market. Um, you know what would consolidation do to the oil services companies? I think it would probably drive consolidation on that end. Um, but you know you sort of wonder if the industry is sort of feeling its way towards a new sort of model or a new sort of relationship with services and providers to the E&Ps. You know, I notice, um, I believe it was EOG announced that it had already, you know, forward contracted for 65% of its services for the year. They announced that as a way to keep a lid on cost. And you also think back to the deal that, um, to the very long-term deal for sand, for providing sand that Pioneer struck with U.S. Silica. Um, we may see, you know, we'll probably have to see more consolidation within the oil field services, but probably also people need to just think how those services are priced and how contracts are arranged in the future. Um, you know, the whole world is changing thanks to the guys out in West Texas who uh, have gotten so pr- amazingly productive with the shale. And, um, you know, we'll just have to see where it leads us. Great. Thank you very much, Jim, for that. Um, I uh, will see what happens with the oil prices from here, and I look forward to the next time we talk energy. Karen, back to you. Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the media page. If you're not a subscriber, you can find them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg.